Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. This is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills. We believe leadership is a skill which can be improved with study of both good and bad practices, and we try to draw interesting examples from many sources, including history, fiction, film, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today's discussion is a continuation in our series on presidents of the United States. Continuing with the little-known Gilded Age presidents, we'll be talking about James Garfield, our 20th president, who served for less than a year in 1881. Garfield was born 1831 in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, son of a wrestler who died when he was two. Grew up in poverty and was mocked by the other boys for being poor and fatherless, which left him sensitive to perceived slights the rest of his life. He escaped mainly through reading and remained a a voracious reader for his life. He left home at the age of 16 to work on a canal boat, an incident which was later mythologized by Horatio Alger in his presidential campaign biography. After six weeks, he returned home probably as a result of contracting malaria. His mother convinced him to return to school instead of going back to the canals. He's shown as a student at Gialga Academy, I'm not sure how that's pronounced, uh, especially in languages and oratory. He had a religious awakening at a camp meeting and was baptized in 1850, and he then enrolled at the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, uh, run by a group called the Disciples of Christ. Initially, he worked as a janitor to help pay for his education, but he was such a good uh, student that he was hired to teach while still a student. Uh, While there, he also wooed his future wife, Lucretia Rudolph, while teaching her Greek. He supplemented his income by preaching in nearby churches. 1854, he transferred to Williams College in Massachusetts, and after his first term there, he was hired to teach penmanship at a school in Pownall, Vermont, where uh, previously Chester Arthur had taught. As an aside, he could write legibly with both hands, and he could write Greek with one hand while writing in Latin with the other. That's actually one of the few facts I knew about him before we started. He graduated from Williams' salutatorian in 1856, returned to Ohio. He was named president of the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute in 1857 and married Lucretia in 1858. But for economic and other reasons, he left education to read law in Cleveland. He was admitted to the bar in 1861. In August of 1861, he was commissioned as a colonel in the 42nd Ohio Infantry Regiment. He drove the Confederates out of eastern Kentucky and was promoted to brigadier general. He fought at Shiloh and Edom, and uh, that summer he was forced to return home by ill health. He hadn't been wounded. Uh, He returned to service in the autumn. He became chief of staff to Major General William Rosecrans in January of 1863 and performed well at the Battle of Chickamauga with a famous ride to rally the troops, and he was promoted to major general while Rosecrans was sacked. He resigned his commission to take a seat in the House of Representatives in December of 1863 at Abraham Lincoln's request, and uh, he had actually been nominated while he was at home on sick leave. He was a radical Republican, fiercely abolitionist and pro-black suffrage, and he favored confiscation of Southern property and the exile or execution of Southern leaders. He managed to pass a conscription bill eliminating commutation 
whereby someone could provide money or a substitute if they'd been uh, conscripted. Staunch backer of the gold standard. He was not a huge fan of Lincoln, but he changed his opinion, at least in public, following Lincoln's assassination. He opposed Andrew Johnson's policies, but eventually distanced himself from the radicals and went so far as to vote against the Ku Klux Klan Act in 1871. He continued to advocate for the gold standard, but he was a supporter of free trade. Served nine terms in the House. Tom, I think before we get to his presidency, we should probably say a little bit about the radical Republicans and the Credit Mobilier scandal. Absolutely, Richard. The um, Lots of interesting things uh, about the presidency, incredibly short presidency, as uh, I guess we should announce a spoiler alert that uh, <laughs> Mr. Garfield is assassinated in this episode or near the end of this episode, perhaps even in the middle of this episode. It was number uh, second uh, president assassinated. And uh, we can go into that in a little bit of detail. But the uh, couple of things that struck me, one was the Commutation Act. Um, uh, I think it was well known that you could pay a bounty and get out of your uh, uh, conscription. What I hadn't fully appreciated, though, that uh, the numbers of people who paid were uh, pay, pay. You didn't just pay to get out. You had to pay someone to take your place. Mm -hmm. So the troops allotments and quotas were filled. But... um, uh, the number of, uh, I think in New York State, there were 10,000 uh, conscripts required. Uh, 300 uh, were non-paid uh, <laughs> positions. So, uh, you know, perhaps there was an active market of men who were willing to enlist and get the Army dole. But uh, I was just, uh, I was frankly shocked by that. I was also very surprised to find Garfield's role in uh, uh, as a radical Republican. Uh, we really didn't have a chance. I don't think I had the chance to explore his evolution, but it was clear he had evolved beyond uh, the simple of the Thaddeus Stevens, Salmon Chase, uh, radical Republicans that we had seen uh, in earlier podcasts and um, really broke with them, I think, uh, certainly near the end of Lincoln's uh, life in the very first days of his second administration, but certainly uh, throughout uh, the Johnson administration. Uh, the Credit Mobilier scandal is more difficult and I think um, unfortunately puts a, a very, uh, if not a dark light on Garfield, certainly a black eye. And it's uh, from the research I did, it's not clear uh, how much his role was. He, he, In some accounts I read, he, he made a profit of about $300, which I recognize as you know, probably 100 times, well, maybe 50 times that today. Um, so it was a relatively small sum uh, in gross dollars in 19 or in 1876 dollars or $1870. It would have been much higher. But uh, he did accept the money. And uh, that was a taint on him and a tarnish on him that he, he carried with him. And he, and he really never fully explained that. The Credit Mobilier scandal touched many, many politicians. It was a scandal around the uh, Trans-Pacific Railroad, um, and lots of money was passed out and lots of stock was passed out to uh, both senators and congressmen, and uh, he was caught up in this, and uh, I never saw a really good answer for it. So I was interested in kind of your take on that. Well, he certainly wasn't alone. The um, the way the scam worked was that... Uh, Credit Mobilier had been formed and was secretly controlled by the officers and directors of the Union Pacific and was given contracts to build, to actually build the railroad, which then uh, Credit Mobilier submitted hugely inflated invoices 
Uh, it was permitted to purchase Union Pacific stock at par, which was substantially below market value. And uh, it paid substantial dividends throughout its, uh, its history. And the key to that was, of course, that the grossly inflated invoices had to be paid, which means Congress had to appropriate the money. And the, the key man behind it was a, a guy from Massachusetts named Oakes Ames, who offered his fellow congressman the opportunity to purchase Credit Mobilier stock at par, basically in exchange for their votes. Um, the vice president at the time, uh, Grant's running mate, who subsequently became vice president, James Blaine, whose names keep, keeps popping up during this time period, and Garfield were all uh, implicated in it. I think he flat out lied about it. Um, I initially thought he was merely being uh, cagey, but I, I think he was, he was he was dishonest in his representations of what he what he had done. It was a relatively small amount of money that he got, but he did vote for the appropriation. So I, I just think it's it's a terrible black eye. Um, among other things in his past that I, I skipped over, he was a member of the electoral commission that had um, given Hayes the. Uh, the presidency. Um, he also voted for what was called the salary grab, where Congress gave itself a retroactive pay raise, which caused a great deal of outrage because uh, there were a lot of lame ducks in Congress at the time who basically were looting the Treasury. <laughs> and he supported that. Um, so, You know, that, that brings up, a, uh, it seems to me, a nice place to talk about something that I I certainly wasn't aware of in this part of history, which was uh, a budget surplus. And I don't mean a 5 or $10 budget surplus. I mean hundreds of millions of dollars of budget surplus that the United States generated. They generated this uh, starting in the Civil War, which I found an unbelievably astounding that you could generate a budget surplus during wartime, given the experience of America and subsequent wars. Nevertheless, um, they did it through increasing the tariffs. And that had uh, several impacts, which we see throughout this time period. One was this huge budget surplus. It wasn't that uh, we were running a deficit, the government was running a deficit to pay these bribes. There was a big old trough of pig slop, and everybody was coming <laughs> to eat. And uh, there was more money than they knew what to do with, literally. Um, when I said 100, uh, we saw figures as high as $150 million of budget surplus. Uh, you name one president in the last 50 years, and they would have, you know, died to have that kind of budget surplus. But the second impact was uh, a, to get that budget uh, surplus was the tariff. And manufacturing states, particularly in the in the Northeast and in the Midwest, wanted the tariff to be maintained because it it protected the American uh, nascent American factory life and uh, the American worker by driving up the price of imported goods. And so we had this kind of two-pronged uh, devil of this huge trough of food, or excuse me, money, that uh, politicians could just raid willy-nilly, being paid for largely uh, by tariffs, so it wasn't being paid for by Americans directly uh, with their tax dollars. But then you had this economic protectionism that was inflating wages, and uh, I think it led to some dire circumstances uh, later. So I was I was really intrigued by this, and particularly with what uh, the politicians could do. We saw later presidents actually, I think, finally do something with this budget surplus in terms of infrastructure, uh, but they were, uh, 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 
I'm, I'm not sure if they were, they didn't know what to do with the money or they didn't believe they could appropriate the money, but it just seemed to grow and grow and grow and it was not used. Well, I think that they were just reluctant to give up on these huge sources of income. There were their excise taxes on a number of items as well, but it was primarily tariffs. And what was interesting to me is the tariff fights in the 1820s, industry in the United States really was nascent and may have, may have needed the protection. But at this point, uh, industry in the United States was, was booming, um, and especially after 1880. So the, uh, the need for the tariffs seems to have been vanishing at the same time the fight over it grew increasingly heated. So then we had uh, the nomination in the election, and from what I recall, Richard, uh, Garfield was a bit of a dark horse candidate. He was. The favorites were uh, a man named John Sherman from Ohio, and Garfield was actually supposed to be managing his campaign since he'd just been elected to the Senate uh, with Sherman's support. Blaine, again, and Grant. Um, the Grant and Blaine supporters deadlocked, and Sherman apparently had no real support uh, nationally, and so Garfield was nominated on the 36th ballot. Now, part of this was the, he was a, a reformer, uh, so the uh, Roscoe Conkling slash Grant faction was pretty much against him, but as a sop to get their support, they agreed to name Chester Arthur, former collector of Custom House in the Board <laughs> of New York, <laughs> as the vice presidential candidate, thinking that uh, you know, that was not usually a road to success. Um, the Democrats nominated Major General Winfield Scott Hancock, and who was a very lackluster candidate. And the Republicans started off uh, sticking with their bloody shirt campaign, where they uh, called the Democrats traitors and and so forth. But they eventually switched to make tariff the uh, the, the key role in the election. Hancock made a couple of speeches that indicated he either didn't understand or didn't care about the issue. And so uh, Garfield won by fewer than 2,000 votes out of 9.2 million cast in the popular vote. But he won 214 to 155 in the Electoral College. So a handy, handy victory there. So let me just say a few words about waving the bloody shirt. Um, the waving the bloody shirt was a term used to uh, talk about your candidate as a Civil War veteran, as therefore a man of honor. But what surprised me, or I was had uh, somewhat forgotten, was the part you raised, Richard. There was a part two of waving the bloody shirt, and that was that the Democrats had taken us into war, and indeed the Democrats were traitors. Now, I would ask you, once again, is there anything new in American politics that uh, you would call your opponent a traitor to America? Why no? I seem to have read something about that fairly recently. (laughs) So uh, it really just stunned me that these themes we're continually seeing um, over and over and over, uh, but the waving the bloody shirt... Uh, I think in our in our lifetime, certainly we have seen uh, veterans uh, use that and use that honorably and successfully in campaigns. Uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush was our last serving World War II veteran. His son, uh, George W. Bush, was our last uh, uh, president to have actually served in the military. And, you know, at one point, I think that meant something. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, now I'm, I'm not so sure. But, uh, and maybe that's, uh, you know, having an all-volunteer army or no major conflicts, maybe that's not a bad thing. But uh, the waving the bloody shirt really struck me that uh, was the second part, that the, the Democrats were traitors. And, but fortunately, by this election, that was uh, seemed to be wearing out. And as I think you correctly noted, uh, the election really turned on, on tariffs and, and either a know-nothing speeches or speeches by uh, Winfield Scott Hancock are really um, not caring. Yeah. Well, I think that the, uh, the importance of being a veteran seems to be coming back into vogue, at least in the lower offices. Yes. A fair number of Congress people uh, are now veterans of Iraq, Afghanistan, and so forth, and run on that basis, and it seems to be effective. So maybe they'll be uh, climbing up the ladders, and we'll see it back. His presidency is, well... Short? Short. <laughs> he was shot... Uh, about 200 days into it, and uh, lingered for a long time, thanks to incompetent medical care, and uh, eventually died. Uh, but uh, he, he did accomplish a few things. He, uh, Before we get to his accomplishments, can I just say a few words about the assassination, though? Yeah. Because, uh, and this is for all you compliance practitioners listening out there, uh, as everyone, everyone in America knows, and everyone in America knew at this point in time, Abraham Lincoln had been assassinated, and he had, he had been shot, and he died in office. Every schoolboy learns that to this day. Well, um, apparently there were no lessons drawn from that because there was no security with the president, and indeed uh, part of his job was to meet the public on a routine basis. Uh, but I was just stunned to find, I thought somehow the um, uh, assassin, I believe Mr. Guiteau, Charles Guiteau, had uh, sub, uh, been able to sneak into a group and get around some security guards and uh, a failure of security. It was not a failure of security. There was no security. And uh, that, that, that's just not acceptable when you have your CEO is gunned down and you take <laughs> no steps. I don't mean inefficient or in, in, in ineffective step, but you take no steps to protect your next uh, CEO. So uh, I guess that that's what really struck me about the assassination. Well, there were several things that, that struck me about it. Um, Guiteau had been had sought a, a, a patronage office. Um, he thought he should be, I think, consul to France or something, even though he didn't speak French. Um, and uh, he had actually met personally with Garfield at least once. And he'd met several times with the Secretary of State on the matter before being told that he was not going to get the office. And he apparently shot Garfield in the belief that Arthur would uh, pardon him uh, in exchange for becoming president and give him the office that he wanted. Um, insanity defense is not being what they are today. He was, he was subsequently hanged. But um, anyway, it, it kind of tarnished Arthur's... Uh, Arthur's ascent to the presidency because there, there was some implication that he was involved, although there's absolutely no evidence he was. But, uh, yeah. So, Failure on so many levels. <laughs> on to the presidency. So there was a couple of things that uh, struck me about Garfield. One, that, um, and this really ties in uh, to the leadership discussion, in spite of the fact of his uh, credit mobilier uh, missteps, I thought he really moved towards certainly civil service reform and picked up where Hayes was not able 
uh, to conclude and uh, move the ball forward on civil service reform. Uh, he, uh, we spoke about the post office corruption in a prior episode. He was able to clean up the post office uh, corruption. And then there was one other incident that I once again have to, to bring to an attention that this just struck me as uh, nothing really ever changes. And that was the nomination <laughs> to the Supreme Court of Stanley Matthews. And Matthews had been nominated to the court by Hayes, but the, uh, he was nominated Hayes last year, and the Senate, amazingly enough, wouldn't even take up the nomination. Now, I'm not sure if that's ever happened before, um, but it happened. And it certainly happened since. <laughs> so uh, it certainly happened since. So that was kind of point one. But here's the other thing about why Hayes, or excuse me, Matthews, um, uh, had trouble getting uh, confirmed as an appoint, appointee to the Supreme Court. He had um, a, uh, been involved in the prosecution while... Uh, district attorney of a newspaper editor who had assisted runaway slaves some 21 years before. And he was a fervent abolitionist himself. He was simply doing his duty as district attorney to enforce the law. Um, So for those who look back on, I guess if you have politicians that are between 75 and 85, they're going to have a long (laughs) career, and they may have done things in the past that may not look good in the eyes of current news and current events, or may not look good in your eyes if you didn't live when those prior events happened. But here we had literally a Supreme Court nominee denied even a hearing because of uh, something you said absolutely spot on, doing his job some 21 years before, or at this point 22 years before, uh, and a firm abolitionist. abolitionist. So... um, I just shook my head when I read that one. So um, he was confirmed. He, he by was one vote. <laughs> eventually <laughs> confirmed, though. But there were a couple of other things in addition to the um, uh, civil service reform. There was still an ongoing debate on the tariff, and uh, also a debate on on something that had uh, we had talked about uh, in earlier podcasts, which is the gold standard. But this debate really came to the fore in this era of uh, U.S. presidents. And should the U.S. currency be backed on a dollar basis uh, by gold or silver even? And so uh, uh, Garfield was uh, a gold bug. He believed that uh, there should be full backing of gold. And the United States stayed on the gold standard, I believe, until the Roosevelt presidency. So it was uh, quite a long run for the gold standard. Actually, the Nixon. Nixon. Yeah, um, yeah no, it's, um, and that, we'll, we'll be coming back to that over the next several presidencies. Yes. Um, it remained a, a huge sticking point in, uh, in American policy. The other thing that uh, he did, which I thought was way ahead of his time, was his proposal for universal education uh, funded by the federal government. He was especially concerned um, Reading his quotes, uh, he would not pass muster today uh, for some of the things he said about black Americans, but he was he was terribly concerned that the governments in the southern states were not educating them, um, quite correctly so. And his solution to that was uh, for the federal government to take a role in education. I was really intrigued by that with Richard. As you know, my parents were both teachers, so it was very important in my household growing up. And I was not aware of his role in advocating this. And he saw education of newly minted citizens, largely African-Americans, as a way for them to uh, not become a a class of peasantry, as he 
phrased it, uh, within the United States. Uh, he had been a teacher. Uh, you mentioned in uh, the opening, uh, uh, when you went through his background, uh, education was very important to him. Books were very important to him. And he had gone on to uh, kind of uh, uh, pinch hit, um, substitute teach, uh, teach at various locations. So this was obviously uh, something that was very important to him, but I was really struck by his analysis of at least part of the problem uh, was a lack of education and a solution to that problem, which was uh, far ahead of its time. Yeah. And uh, so I think his, his very brief presidency is one of those that uh, gives rise to a lot of counterfactual kind of speculation. Uh, could he have gotten that through Congress? Uh, probably not, but it, it would have been interesting. There were there were several uh, hints of of directions which I, uh, I I'm not sure I would call it progressive, but they certainly were not regressive. Uh, we didn't even touch on sort of uh, foreign policy and most importantly naval reform mm-hmm. that he started and uh, increased under under later presidents. And I guess I. Um, Certainly knew he was one of the assassinated presidents, and I knew him for that reason. Uh, I knew he was assassinated by a disgruntled potential civil service candidate, um, sort of all of those stories. But he had a lot of very interesting ideas that, had they come to fruition, uh, I think really could have made a, a much different and outstanding mark. Um, this was in spite of what I believe was his ethical misstep around Credit Mobilier. Yeah. Well, I think, I think we agree on that, and uh, it's just one of those fascinating what might have been kind of speculations. Um, a lot of historians apparently don't even rank him um, <laughs> among presidents because he served for such a short time, which may be the fair way to look at it. But uh, anyway, opportunities missed. Well, on that note, this is uh, Richard Lummis with Tom Fox here at 12 O'Clock High. We hope you listen in for our next series. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.